This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Take the baseline out. Uh-huh. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Hardwood Knox Podcast. I am a very tired Dan Favalli coming at you with an equally exhausted Adam Frommel, founder and editor-in-chief of NBA Math, also a writer at Bleacher Report. Andy will not be joining us today. Uh, we have some very, we have a very exciting discussion to get to, but before we do, I just want to remind, plead, implore, beg everyone to continue rating rev- and reviewing us on iTunes. The numbers continue to go up in terms of how many people have uh, given us a rating. We really appreciate that. That's the best way to just help the podcast, to give us feedback and, and let us know that you're listening and, and love us. Or hate us, that's fine too, but throw us a five-star review anyway. You can find us wherever podcasts are found, though, with the exception of Spotify, which takes a zillion years to approve things, apparently. So subscribe to us wherever you do get your podcasts. But again, if you can take the 15 seconds out of your day to search Hardwood Knocks on iTunes uh, and just give us a rating and a review, Andy and I, and even Adam, will be forever indebted to your service. We are going to talk about some current events, hopefully, if we have time, but NBA math rolled out. Uh, Adam's baby, latest baby, not to be confused with the actual baby of his that is on the way, uh, progressive GOAT rankings, progressive greatest of all time rankings that are, he's going to lead this discussion, but in a snapshot, uh, super valuable to look at. You have to look at the article on nbamath.com. Under GOAT rankings, he lays out everything. Uh, this can work as a single-year GOAT-type thing where you see which player was the, the greatest by season, but it really what this does is show you a concrete pecking order in the pantheon of all-time stars as it unfolds year by year. So you can see the progression from, I'm not even going to drop names and let him do that, but GOAT 1 to when did the greatest of all time change for a second time or a third time. And so this is just super interesting. And I, I first want to ask you, uh, Adam, well, one, how are you doing? I'm doing great. No complaints here. Are you sure you published an article about Kobe the other day? Just no complaints whatsoever? Eh, you know, it's it's always fun when you write something about Kobe and, and you get the reaction from the fans. But it's I try not to let anything bother me when people clearly aren't reading what was actually written. So still no complaints. Now, we've, we've both done this for long enough that getting some of that online vitriol doesn't really bother us. No, I hear you. And this is probably a Kobe Stan safe zone just because there, I think there are too many numbers thrown out on this podcast for us to house a large gaggle of Kobe Bryant supporters who was, yeah, I, as a basketball player, very good 
but objectively just overrated. Yeah, I think it, it applies to the NBA math umbrella in general. And the GOAT rankings are, are a nice example of that because he wound up, I, I think, uh, 16th in our final rankings up through the 2017-18 season. And that wasn't really met with any negative feedback, which I thought was pretty interesting. I, I figured that would be one of the things that we got pushback on. But it seems like our followers and the people who listen to Hardwood Knox and are subscribed to the Twitter feed and all that jazz didn't really complain about that, which was nice to see. Basically, we need more Kobe stands to hate follow NBA math and hate listen to Hardwood Knox. That's all we're saying here. I think that's the primary takeaway for sure. I, so I want to start before getting into the methodology with this. Um, what inspired you or made you want to do these progressive GOAT rankings in the first place and to come up with a formula to do so? Yeah, it's, it's something that we spend so much time talking about. It, it seems like, especially nowadays with LeBron continuing to dominate in his 15th season and will probably continue to play at a very high level now that he's with the Lakers, every week there's a new spin on the GOAT discussion, whether he's surpassed Jordan or whether he ever will and if Kareem should be in that conversation and Wilt and whoever you want to throw into that equation. So... I originally just wanted to look at it from that angle and see if we could come up with some sort of, of, of objective way to, to rank these players. And it turned into the progressive idea, which I thought was far more interesting because we can literally trace how this conversation has progressed throughout NBA history, starting from George Mikan, who had the title in the first couple of years, to Dolph Shays, who took over for a while and that transitioned into Bill Russell for three years and then Wilt took over and then Kareem had it for decades before uh, LeBron is our current number one. And it's interesting that Jordan never actually held down that top spot. And I'm sure we're going to talk about that at some point. But uh, it, it was the the ability to see how that evolved throughout history that, that really made me want to continue doing this and put out what I, I think is one of the coolest things we've done on NBA math. What do you think kind of as a snapshot of of the methodology what went into what were you prioritizing over everything else when when coming up with these rankings well we needed a consistent baseline and to do that we used the the pet stat of the site which is TPA and converted that into z scores which is how many standard deviations above or below an average um, a, a score is and we did that for each season to essentially establish a pecking order for each season that could also be contextualized against the other seasons. So by establishing the same baseline that we could reasonably use throughout all of NBA history, such that players were only being compared to their contemporaries, it became something that looked at how much better a player was than his peers at the time, which allows for those inter-era translations that we need to have this conversation. And you, you had a cutoff for, I think it was the top 25 players of each Correct. season. And, and what's the what was the reasoning for that? Yeah, so rather than including everyone, which would have affected the scores pretty significantly, I think, because let's, let's take like Shaq as an example. At the tail end of his career, when he was no longer the absolutely dominant force he was in the early 2000s, yeah, he, he was still good enough to have positive scores. And he might have boosted his overall mark enough to squeeze into the top 10. He's, 
He's currently at number 13, um, directly between David Robinson and Clyde Drexler. But that's not really what I wanted to do here, because when we're talking about the greatest of all time, I don't think that that mediocre or slightly above average season should really be a part of the conversation. So the, the top 25 cutoff, which only allowed us to look at the 25 highest scores from each given season, is an arbitrary one, which we, we admitted in the flaws section towards the beginning of this article. Uh, but it was necessary to look at, at what I called greatness rather than goodness. We, we only want to be analyzing the seasons that really stood out during any given year rather than allow longevity mixed with goodness to, to color our, our analysis. Was there anything that surprised you about the results? And there are things that stand out to me, so I could probably ask you what surprised you more. But for you specifically, was there one thing that you were just even, maybe not even in terms of the overall GOAT rankings now or how they panned out progressively, but maybe if there was a single season or when it came to looking at the the rookie GOAT rankings or, or by position GOAT rankings? Uh, that's a lot to think through real fast. Um. <laughs> All right, so then let, let me give you mine. Was it, is it more surprising to you uh, that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar held it for so long, basically four decades, I think it was, maybe more than that, or almost four decades? Um, more surprising to you that LeBron ended up taking the crown either so late in his career or maybe it was a little bit earlier than you expected. He became the 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 GOAT overall in 2013-2014. Or did it surprise you more that Michael Jordan was never number one? It surprised me more that Jordan was never number one. Uh, I, I figured that because Kareem had such a long career where he was always near the top, I mean, he entered the NBA out of UCLA as a MVP candidate. And even towards the tail end of his career with the Lakers, like he was playing at an all-star level. He made the all-star team during his age 41 season, which is pretty remarkable. So I figured that his score was going to be pretty high, but I thought that Jordan would, would get closer to him and actually surpass him before LeBron eventually took the number one spot. And if you, th- this is one of the reasons that I included the per season standings as well. Um, which you can find in that article, is the the primary reason that Jordan couldn't ascend to the number two or at the time the number one spot is just because he didn't play as many years. You know, he he had a 15-season career. One of those, he only played a handful of games before breaking his foot as a sophomore. And then we had the the baseball hiatus in the middle of his career, which takes away the prime seasons. So those 15 years include the time with the Wizards where even though he was good, he wasn't in the top 25 and didn't accrue any more of the GOAT points. So from a per-season standpoint, he still, even with those Wizards here, even with the, the broken foot, he still finished number two. Um, but he just didn't have the volume necessary to climb all the way up, which which did surprise me. Did it surprise you that Kareem held the the thing for so long, though? Uh, just I Even when you look at, okay, Jordan never passed Kareem to have some, the same GOAT for... Four decades seems fairly incredible. Yeah, I think it's incredible, but not surprising because to be surprised by that, somebody had to have surpassed him, right? And who was that going to be before Jordan? I mean, maybe maybe you could have thought that that Magic Johnson or Larry Bird was going to take the crown for a little while, but 
neither of them had the longevity that we needed magic because of HIV and bird because of the back injuries at the tail end of his career. Like they just didn't play enough. So it was either Jordan or nothing, which is probably why I wasn't too surprised by it. Jordan did have, according to the GOAT rankings, the, the best season of, of any rookie in NBA history, though. So Correct. Bulls fans have that to stand for. Ben Simmons in that same category came up number nine, his rookie season with the Sixers. Oh, excuse me. Rookie season. I'm making air quotes right now as I, as I say that. Just got to cater <laughs> oh, are we going to do that again? Got to cater to the Donovan Mitchell fans. Again. Um, I was, is this just because Andy isn't here? Yeah, pretty much. Um he actually thought that whole thing was objectively ridiculous too. Even as the pod's foremost Donovan Mitchell guy, the when I was looking at the rookie ones before, I having Alvin Adams, knowing he was he was good, but to have him as the fourth best rookie overall in the goat rankings again, just looking at rookie seasons, uh, he had the fourth most goat points behind Magic Johnson, Wilt Chamberlain, and Michael Jordan was just. It was obscene to me. And not obscene because that implies like a negative connotation, but that's something that kind of disarmed me as well. I think we largely forget about just how good Alvin Adams was at the beginning of his career with the Suns. And and I'm guilty of that as well because he was he was actually in the tail end of the historical top 20 throughout his playing days. It took him a while to actually fall out of it because the beginning of his career was so good. And each time I saw his name there, I was like, huh. That's interesting. Like, I did not expect that. Do you think this, particularly when I'm looking at the most GOAT points by position, do you think that these rankings or just this process proved to you or validated overall that the game is better than it's ever been before? Just because you look at so many of the names near the top of these positions and Really, for power forward is the the only one that stood out for me, or I guess the big guys in general, the only ones that stood out mm-hmm. for me is lacking contemporaries uh, within them. But point guards, shooting guards, and small forwards were chock full of, if not dominated by, the the more modern day guys. Would you be surprised if I said no? No, not at all. Okay, yeah, I think that if we said that this proved that the league was getting better, it would be a little bit of confirmation bias because the methodology by design was geared to give current players a little bit more credit. Reason being that the league is constantly getting better just from an objective standpoint. So I don't know that it can prove something that was a fundamental assumption for the project. And the reason that that we made that assumption is just because the number of teams has increased, the number of players has increased, which makes standing out from the pack something that's more difficult to do. The And the way I look at this most, and we talked about this in the intro, is the end of bench players. So there's a finite number of roster spots in the NBA during any given season. There is There is not a limited supply of players who are trying to get into those spots, whether it's the 60 rookies coming in through the draft or the undrafted free agents or guys who are coming back from Europe and trying to break into the league, Brad Wanamaker, for example, this year. Uh, So because there's such competition for those spots, those players naturally get better. So even if we don't look at the increasing sophistication of schemes and medical advances and physical advances and all of that, like just the quality of the players who are 
on rosters. Even if you go back to the 90s and start talking about like Luke Longley on the Chicago Bulls, um, Bill Wennington on those title winning teams, like those players don't exist so much these days. And we've seen a big change even in the last couple decades. So we, we made it by design easier to stand out in the modern era than any other. And I think I think that makes sense, particularly what you said at, at the beginning, is because it is harder to stand out when you have more teams. And if the game has never been better objectively, when I, I don't know who watches, very few people watch today's game and say, oh, we need to go back to just way more post-ups and, and slow everything down and the rules need to be changed again so that you can play a more aggressive defense and... And there are people who take that stance, but it's not. I think, generally speaking, everyone thinks that basketball today is at its peak. And if it's going to be at its peak overall, why wouldn't the best players of a game that's at its peak deserve favorable consideration or end up just registering more highly on this type of exercise? Exactly. And I I think it's totally valid to question whether the league is the best we've ever seen. But the game of basketball and the quality of the players is unquestionably the best we've ever seen. Yeah, for sure. Is there anything we should be, before I get to the question about LeBron that we discussed before the podcast, is there anything we should be on the lookout for in the coming, say, half decade to maybe even 10 years when looking at the the top 30. I don't know if you've given that much thought, but seeing, you know, you have Paul Pierce at number 30 right now, all time, uh, Gary Payton, number 29, Jerry West, number 28, Oscar Robinson, number 27, Dirk Nowitzki, number 26. Is there any, in that area, is there someone that is on the verge of breaking into that group or that you think we should just be, be on the lookout for? I think that you can reasonably look at a lot of the young guys as contenders to to keep moving up them. I think, it, as we already noted, Ben Simmons with the number nine rookie score. He's also in the top 20 for per season score, which is because he only has one year. I mean, that's pretty obvious why that's able to happen right now. You didn't now. use air quotes when you said one year. <laughs> I apologize. I'll, I'll do better next time. Okay. Uh, but in terms of, of current players who are immediate threats to move into that, it's it's actually interesting that there aren't too many um, right away. Uh, we haven't really revealed the the guys who are just outside that top 30, but I'll, I'll read you off 31 through 40 real fast. And that's Wes Unseld, Reggie Miller, John Stockton, Bob Pettit, Walt Frazier, Manu Ginobili, Tracy McGrady, Larry Nance, Ray Allen, and Dolph Shays. I don't think any of those guys are going to be breaking into the top 30 anytime soon unless Manu plays until he's 50. Um, I hope he does. Like, go ahead. I said I hope he does. I mean, I think we all do. Yeah. In terms of uh, players who have a shot, just scrolling through the rest of the rankings, Kawhi Leonard is 49th, but that assumes that he still wants to play basketball, which I know you have thoughts about. Andrew Bynum uh, Light. Yeah, apparently so. Marc Gasol is 64th. Um, wow. I would never have guessed he's that high. Draymond Green is 79th and is probably going to continue moving up pretty rapidly. Al Horford, 84th. Kyle Lowry, 85th. Blake Griffin, 88th. But he's slowed down as well. So it's it's hard to see guy that many that many current players moving up quickly. 
some will get there for sure, especially like if we look at the Jokic, Carl Anthony Towns, Giannis Antetokounmpo category of like these up, up and coming superstars. But I have no idea how long it's going to take them to get there. You had what you didn't have. This ends up putting Stephen Curry at number 25 currently and Kevin Durant at number 21. Did those surprise you at all? And that's probably geared more towards Stephen Curry. And then how high do you see those two guys ultimately rising? Um, I was more surprised that Durant wasn't already in the top 20, um, close to the top 10, just because he's had such a remarkable career. But he's also had some injuries. The beginning of his career got off to a relatively slow start because the Seattle Supersonics didn't really understand how to use him. But, you know, these guys are are earning four or five GOAT points every year. Durant is, what, uh, he's 18 out of the top 10. So, I mean, he's going to get there. You know, give him five years, and I wouldn't be surprised if he's in our top ten. And, and same for Steph. Um, I was a little bit, I, I hesitate to say surprised, maybe disappointed that Russell Westbrook was twentieth, one spot ahead of Durant, because I don't think it's. I think that's really, great for the culture. It's it's just not reasonable to say that Westbrook's had a better career than Durant on any level. But we we understand because we worked with TPA and with these numbers long enough that his score is just severely boosted by these interaction effects between his ridiculously high usage rate and his assist percentage because he's so, 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 so hyper for the Thunder and has been for a long time that the baseline stats that we're using here just aren't equipped to handle him. He's the player that's literally breaking the stats. Um, We're not going to alter the methodology for him, but I think a lot of the listeners here and a lot of the people who follow our Twitter feed understand at this point that we're not saying that he's had the best point guard season of all time and one of the best seasons of all time in 2017 and just that his numbers are a little boosted also he's more loyal and this clearly baked in loyalty to the formula absolutely that's why paul george is about to rocket up the standings (laughs) is there something that you wish this probably steps on the toes of of the flaws section of this and again you all need to go to the goat rankings page on nbamath.com is there something you wish you could have accounted for that you really wouldn't have been able to quantify even if you had infinite time to do so or is it just the how much tpa weights usage and, and defensive rebounding obviously as well i've always said that if i had access to a time machine the first thing i would do is go back and start recording stats in the 50s and 60s like more than we have because so George Mikan, for example, the first couple of years of his career, we don't even know how many rebounds he had because the box scores were that sparse. Uh, Bill Russell and Will Chamberlain, we don't know how many shots they blocked. Just we have the anecdotal stories. So I, I would love to change that. But the biggest thing for this project is that we don't have playoff scores prior to 1974. So from 74 on, we included both the regular season and the playoffs, which only slightly disadvantages the older players because we're still comparing it to their contemporaries who also don't have playoff scores baked into the equation. So that's not the issue so much as not giving somebody like Bill Russell a chance to stand out in the playoffs as well. If we could include those postseason numbers, which unfortunately we just don't have the numbers to do, his ability to go to the finals and win every year 
is going to allow him to gain more separation from that current pack, even though he's already only being compared to the current pack who also don't have playoff numbers. So like he would he would have finished higher than 18th in our rankings. I, I can absolutely 100% guarantee that. But we have no idea how high he would rise. You know, would he have been on Wilt Chamberlain's level? Would he have just snuck into the top 10? Would he have been higher than Kareem and potentially threatening LeBron? Like, we just don't know. And that's kind of disappointing. Now, LeBron, as we mentioned, is at number one as of the 2013-2014 season. And his hold, now that he's held that for about five seasons, six seasons, that would make it, Mm -hmm. uh, is pretty, I would say, fairly substantial. And he's only, he's not done. That's the other thing. He's not done. He, it's, we don't know that he's taking a hiatus to film Space Jam 2 or pursue his NFL interests or film the next three to five sequels to Trainwreck. Do you see anyone ever surpassing him? And I, that's a loaded question. And if, if, we, if we want to take it this way, do you think that his reign in this exercise this process, this ranking is going to be as protracted as Kareem's was. Every single part of me wants to say, no, we're not going to see another LeBron because he's just this unfathomable athlete who's dominated for 15 years and the numbers are absolutely remarkable. But it would be, I think, irresponsible to make that conclusion just because we don't know how long basketball history is going to last and we have no idea what's going to come around next. So the way, the way I think about it is when Wilt Chamberlain was playing, the idea of someone like Kareem would have been unfathomable. When Kareem was playing, who would have ever expected Michael Jordan to come along? When Jordan, when Jordan was done, we, we spent a lot of time searching for the next Jordan unsuccessfully in a lot of cases, and then LeBron came around. So we, we can't really conceive of these all-time greats until – they're actually playing. And even then, it's hard to, to have them stack up against the mythologized guys of the past. And my, my, my brother asked me this question as well. And the way I explained it to him is using a, a technology metaphor. So if, if you go back to the 1900s, when the early 1900s, when Model Ts were just starting to come off the assembly lines, if you, if you took a time machine and told them, in 100 years, we're going to have these cell phones that are wireless and you can just search on Google, whatever you want, they couldn't comprehend that. There's absolutely no way for them to expect that something like that is going to come around just because it's so far beyond the level of technology that they have right now, but it still happens. And we see that with technology throughout the decades where these, these innovations come along that would have been inconceivable until they're actually happening. And I think athletes operate largely similarly, where it's so hard to imagine what the next advancement is going to be in the NBA beyond this three-point shooting bonanza that we're seeing in today's game. Um, so it's it's really hard to conceptualize what the player who's going to be better than LeBron is going to look like because we haven't seen it. But if history has told us anything, it's that that constant advancement is going to happen. I'm going to break the GOAT rankings wall that's up in front of us for a second. And I asked this question to Andy, and it kind of ties into this a little bit. LeBron's contract with the Lakers, four years, third-year player option. And let's use the, let's use the uh, 
player option as the cutoff. So at the end of his contract, year three with the Lakers, is he still going to be the best player in the NBA today, currently? Or will someone have overtaken him by that point? Which would then, in turn, not factor in directly to the GOAT rankings because no one um, in the league right now that is still going to be playing at the height of their powers is that close to him where we have to worry about it being a three- or four-year process. But that would help if he's still the best player in the league at age 36, which is unheard of because the best age 36, age 37 seasons have been turned in by statistically Carl Malone and John Stockton when looking at the catch-all metrics. Um, and I looked at this last podcast, but if LeBron is still the best player in the NBA by year three, or how many more years does he have as the best player in the NBA? Because then his lead in this spot is only going to grow. Oh, that's such a tough question, but I, I think I think he very well could be. It's hard to say definitively that he will be just because there are so many remarkable young talents who are only getting better. But it would not surprise me at all if he firm, if he fully transitioned into more of that Magic Johnson role and showed off his passing talents even more and was able to te- take a step back as a scorer and still just play remarkable basketball. Um, and maybe that's a little bit too much of a hedge. I, I think if, if I had to, to pick an answer which apparently I do, do. Um, I would probably say, no, he will not be, but he won't be far off. And I think that we'll still see him spending significant stretches of the season operating like he's the best player, but I think someone will surpass him. Who do you think is going to surpass him by that point? Giannis. Giannis. Ben Simmons could probably be thrown in there too. Durant and Curry will be a little old by that point. Yeah, Giannis has to be the pick just because the Kawhi Leonard stuff with his injury doesn't even like to play basketball. But I wouldn't rule out. He's older than we think, too. I think it's easy to view Kawhi as still this like 24 year old who's breaking into the league. But I mean, he's what, 27 now? Almost 27? I believe. Going on 28, I think. I'll double check that. But I I wouldn't rule out Ben Simmons in that conversation. If he gets a floater or anything like resembling a jump shot, that's going to be incredibly scary what have i don't I, think we want to overlook trey young in this conversation either Ooh, spoken like a, <sighs> spoken like a heartbroken hawks fan trying to find a silver lining uh, <sighs> jared jackson summer league i can't make you feel any better either i mean you pass on Doncic, but pass on jared jackson too yeah and his eight threes came against the hawks that's fitting um yeah, it is. what have i what have I not asked you about this? Is there anything that I have not covered that you wanted to, to address um, on these GOAT rankings that you want people to know that maybe won't be communicated in the writing or you just don't trust people to read through the criteria? <laughs> um, I think the biggest thing is just remembering that the most important part of this conversation is stating clearly what exactly it is we're discussing. Because not everyone has the same criteria for the GOAT argument. Not everyone has the same factors that are playing into this conversation. So for this project, this doesn't take into account championships. It doesn't take into account anecdotal observations and the stories that that color what we think of these players. This is purely about how much these players have produced as individuals. So whether they were producing for winning teams or for losing teams. If they were putting up 
their individual production, that's what mattered here. And I, I think that's very important because guys like Michael Jordan and, and guys like Bill Russell and Kobe Bryant even are going to climb higher in conversations that go beyond that pure objectiveness um, or even take an objective look at other factors where players like Chris Paul and David Robinson might move slightly down. And if you don't properly frame what it is we're talking about, the whole debate is kind of pointless. Yeah, that's more than fair. And for the people who maybe haven't looked at this just yet, how did the uh, top 30, just if you want to go first to worst, worst to first, how did the top 30 end up shaking out? You want me to just read the top 30 for them? Yeah, I think that would be interesting for people to, to digest if they hear the number. Sure. So at 30, we have Paul Pierce. 29 was Gary Payton, Jerry West, Oscar Robertson, Dirk Nowitzki, and Stephen Curry, um, up to 25. James Harden, Julius Irving, Dwayne Wade, Kevin Durant, and Russell Westbrook, who we've talked about already, uh, gets us to 20. Uh, Scottie Pippen, Bill Russell, Jason Kidd, Kobe Bryant, Kim Olajuwon, Clyde Drexler, Shaquille O'Neal, David Robinson, and Chris Paul are those just outside the top 10. We've got Kevin Durant at 10, Larry Bird at 9. Magic Johnson at eight. Of course, those two have to be right next to each other. Uh, seven is Charles Barkley. Six is Carl Malone, who we didn't really talk about, but often gets overlooked in these kind of conversations. Five is Tim Duncan. I yes. love that he ended up that high, as do you, apparently. Uh, four is Will Chamberlain. Three is Michael Jordan. Two is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And one is LeBron James. I think it's very worth noting that the MJ, Kareem, LeBron tier is pretty far above the rest of the pack. Like those are the the clear standouts, which kind of validates those three players being the primary points of focus in most of the GOAT conversations. I like that Kevin Garnett ended up in the top 10, just because I feel like he almost becomes overlooked because of how many irrelevant years there were in Minnesota. And when we talk about not even just power forward centers, whatever, but just the greatest bigs, I would say Carl Malone, gets mentioned a lot before him, as does Duncan and Barkley and Larry Bird, David Robinson and Shaq and, and Hakeem. So to have him at number 10 in front of many of those guys is just, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm glad it happened whether or not, I would probably mostly agree with it, Shaq, uh, you know, behind him, but I'm happy that he ended up in the top 10 because I feel like he's another guy who, because of a lack of, even though he has a championship, but because of a lack of playoff success for that huge portion of of his career that he does tend to get a little slighted in these types of big picture discussions. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's interesting just looking at the scores that these guys posted throughout their careers. So someone like Carl Malone, um, he topped out at 5.36 goat points during his 1998 season. He was just consistently between three and five for well over a decade, as opposed to someone like Kevin Garnett, who in 2003, 5.6, 2004, 7.4, 2005, 5.9. Like he was more of a consolidated peak. And I love that that players who had different career trajectories were able to to both feature so well. Yeah, I'm happy he ended up in the top 10. And I, like you, I'm happy that Tim Duncan is in the top five because that's where he belongs. Agreed. Now, kind of segueing into more current events, LeBron, I don't know if you know, has left the East, is now in the Western Conference, playing for the Lakers. Who is your best team in the East now? Is it the Boston Celtics and the Sixers 
and Raptors and Bucks and Wizards just don't have a chance of catching them? Or do you think there's more of a free-for-all at the top of the East? I think we're going back into the 80s where it's just the Celtics and the Sixers battling for Eastern Conference supremacy year in and year out. Both of those teams are already so good. They're so young. They have so much upside. Um, It's hard to pick between the two. I think I would slightly favor the Sixers just because I think Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid are both generational talents. And I don't know that Boston has anyone quite on that level, even though they're a deeper team, a better coached team probably. but I think those are, are the two head and shoulders above the rest of the East. And I say this as somebody who's higher than most on the Raptors, too. It's funny how the Raptors have just been written off as trash because they got swept by the Cavaliers, and yet their roster hasn't really changed. Why would they fall off a cliff? It's just <laughs> that, that discussion is interesting to me. If you don't want to say they're as good as the Sixers or the Celtics, that's perfectly fine to me, but it's just funny how People are like, oh, the Pacers are going to surpass them. And it, like, let's pump the brakes. The Raptors just had the number one seed and have, over the past few years, been a very good regular season team. And I don't think you put them up against the Celtics or Sixers and see them get steamrolled in the same way you see them get bounced by no, any not. squad with LeBron. Yeah, and we've talked about this pretty extensively, how they, they really had the two options this offseason, which was to run it back with a different coach who might be able to get them to continue playing with the same system and the same confidence that they operated with throughout the regular season or to just blow it up completely. And I'm glad they went the route they did with the coaching change because everything worked really well during the regular season. And it's a system that doesn't have to fall off come playoff time. They just playing against LeBron is just such a mental hurdle for that team. They don't have to worry about it now. So I wouldn't be surprised if, if they are, on the same level as Boston and Philadelphia for this next season. But it's the upside of those two front runners that I think pushes them well ahead in the conversation because we, we aren't really only talking about the 2018-19 season, unless I'm mistaking that. No. Um, who do you think is going to be the worst team in the East next year? Though? Probably the Hawks again. <laughs> Other than the Hawks. The Hawks are still worried like about the, the Magic. One- the, the, I'm still worried about Orlando. I guess the Hawks are the one team in the East that you look at and say they're trying to lose. The Knicks might be up there, but they probably have talked themselves into chasing victories anyway because they're the Knicks, even without Kristaps Porzingis. But I guess the Hawks are the only team you look at in the East right now and say, yeah, they're going to want to lose. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not in... So, Summer League is always tricky because it's Summer League, but... I think that it's easier to draw negative conclusions than it is positive ones from Summer League. So, like, watching Trey Young, the fact that he can't generate any separation, especially when he's driving against Summer League players, is pretty concerning. Um, And if he doesn't have a monstrous rookie season, what does that team have? Torian Prince, my guy, Torian Prince. Yeah, but I mean, like, is Artorian, Prince, and John Collins going to lead you out of the basement? Probably not. But they do yeah, have that. I mean, ma- so, they do have Dallas's top five protected pick next year, so there's that. Yeah, I mean, they could have like six picks next year. And Trey Young could be good. It's as you said. It's easier to draw negative takeaways from summer league yeah. than it is for positive ones. And then you don't. Even when there are positive stuff, you're almost hesitant. 
to read into it because it's it's summer league and because Josh Selby is is a real person. It's I, because like De- Derek White has been exciting. It's, I don't know how much of summer league you've caught, but Derek White has been exciting for the Spurs, and it's like. Maybe they would give him a bigger role, particularly if they trade Kawhi Leonard, but you don't want to read too much into it because it's summer league. Mm-hmm. But Jaron Jackson's clearly going to be the best player in the NBA. Over oh, the next right away. Years. That's, I think that's a given. Do you think the Cavaliers are going to, post-LeBron, we, we actually talked about this very shockingly very little uh, in the post-LeBron podcast. What do you think the Cavaliers are going to end up doing? Do you think they're going to look at the East and say, you know what, we could run it back, and we're going to run it back. We're going to have Kevin Love as the focal point, keep George Hill, and try and make the playoffs. Or do you think they're going to actually blow it up? And then what is the right move? The right move is blowing it up. Okay. Just they're not sure. going to. They're not going to. You're I can't that see. They won't? I don't think they will, because I think Kevin Love's reputation has suffered enough from these last couple of years that they're not going to get fair value back in return for him. And the Cavs roster to me seems to have quite a few pieces, especially if they bring back someone like Rodney Hood, who are going to be better without LeBron there. Um, it's not that LeBron made them worse, but they have playing styles that are better when they can, that when they can have more responsibility. Uh, so someone like Love who can channel those Minnesota days or Hood who's better at creating shots off the bounce and George Hill who's going to get to play with the ball in his hands more and I really like Colin Sexton as well Um, I I think that they have enough guys like that where they could convince themselves that in the weaker half of the NBA they could make a playoff push and we have to remember who their owner is and it's really hard for me to see Dan Gilbert swallowing his ego enough to make the right decision here when he could very reasonably make a playoff push and be like, ha, we're still winning without LeBron. Are the Cavaliers as presently constituted making the playoffs in the Eastern Conference? Probably not, but they're not far enough away. Where, 10, 11 or, range, right? Probably. Yeah, they're, they're probably in that, that 9, 10, 11 range where they could very reasonably – be good enough during the first half of the season that they could make a play at the trade deadline to get themselves into the mix. They they need to blow it up, particularly after drafting Colin Sexton. You can't pass up the opportunity to try and get another high pick. It's I just, totally agree. I just don't think it'll happen. That's that's going to set them back forever, in my opinion, if they do that. I'm still, I'm probably giving them too much credit then. I would have thought they looked at even if they don't blow it up, you can trade Kevin Love. That's a given. But even if you don't blow it up, you look at some of the, the way that your books are structured, and you can do some things with cap space by 2020. So it's like bomb the next two years, enter 2020 free agency with those two good draft picks, plus whatever Colin Sexton has turned into by that point, plus Chetty Osmond, and, and see if you can start laying the foundation for a winner there. But I... I am with I the temptation is going to be there because the Eastern Conference invites it and it'll invite it even more if Charlotte bites the bullet and trades Kemba Walker which won't happen for the same reason. Yeah. I it they just they should they probably won't I still feel like they will. But I I almost feel like that's stubborn as well. And so you don't think Charlotte's going to blow it up either. I don't think any of the teams in the East really are going to because the allure of the playoffs especially in a conference that's so weak, 
Like, if they can get in, stranger things have happened, right? And I think that's the mentality a lot of teams are going to have, these untested teams. No, no, none of these teams have been to the finals, right? I mean, because LeBron has been the only one for the last eight years. So I think it's really easy, or it's going to be really easy for teams to fool themselves into thinking they have a better chance than they do. It's also really hard now that LeBron is gone from the Cavs, who are just this reflexive Kemba Walker suitor, to kind of pinpoint there are places where Kemba Walker would work, but you kind of look at teams' depth charts at where they are in in their development. Um, I don't know where you see Kemba Walker. At I this just point. really want him to end up in San Antonio somehow. Yeah, if there was like a three-team trade that got San Antonio the other stuff, and yeah. the Kawhi Leonard Lakers deal. Uh, that hey, if if the Spurs don't want Lonzo Ball, could send Lonzo Ball to Charlotte, and I'm sure they'd be willing to send out Kemba Walker and other stuff to the Spurs. Nicholas Batum, terrible contract, such a Spurs player though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, I, I almost wonder if this year's trade deadline is going to be really boring, just because of the way these conferences are working, where the East is so open that teams can can reasonably think they're going to end up with the four seed without making any big moves. And in the West, no one no one is going to think that they can challenge the Warriors once DeMarcus Cousins is healthy, that they're just not even going to bother this year. I almost lean towards the other side because this past year's trade deadline was so boring, and next year there's supposed to be more cap space that I would think there'll be more teams being aggressive and maximizing that cap space, and maybe we see some trades geared towards that and with I so hope many, you're right and with so many teams rebuilding i think there might be ones that are just willing to take some some more chances look as long as the hawks end up with the first five picks in the draft i don't care what happens they do have like a zillion picks and they have not that, have you been surprised at all that the salary dumping market has not even a matter of it being robust it just it has not existed i can't even count wilson chandler to the 76ers as a salary dump because i think wilson chandler is a good player and it's a salary dump in the sense that the Nuggets wanted to get money off their tax bill because of the max that Jokic is going to sign but I, it's just he's they didn't need to include a real sweetener it was second round pick considerations that's not a real sweetener to me yeah I am surprised by that a little bit and it seems like we're seeing or at least seeing rumors of more buyouts than usual like I don't I don't really remember Quite as many prominent players or prominent names, I would I should say, being bought out or rumored to be bought out as we've seen recently. Um, I guess two more quick topics. I know we're jumping around here, but it's been crazy off season, and we need filler content, guys. So welcome it. The report from the Chicago Sun Times is Joe Cali that Jimmy Butler is not happy playing with Carl Anthony Towns. Uh, there's also been reports previously that he's not happy playing with Andrew Wiggins either. The Timberwolves. If, even if they offered him an extension, if they got far enough under the cap to offer it, he wouldn't sign it because he stands to make more money in free agency then. What do you think? Not what makes sense. If you're the Timberwolves, objectively, you should be getting rid of literally everyone before you trade Carl Anthony Towns. There's literally no one in that organization who is more important than him. But because Tibbs is in control, do you think it's more likely that he trades? Jimmy Butler, Andrew Wiggins, or Carl Anthony Towns? I think your premise is wrong. 
because I don't think that Carl Anthony Towns is the most important person in that in that organization. I think Tom Thibodeau is the most important person in that organization. He shouldn't be, Should but he be. sure seems to be. So I would I would think that they're going to trade Towns before they're going to get rid of Butler because and they have that personal connection because Thibodeau really likes his players. And the other thing is Andrew Wiggins would be the clear answer no matter how little we think of Thibodeau, but maybe Glenn Taylor still really believes in Andrew Wiggins. It's just, it's the contract. His, yeah, who's going to want to trade anything of value for that contract right now? I'm not even sure that I'm, uh, I shouldn't say that. There's a team that would basically absorb him, but you can't give up on a former number one overall pick who hasn't even started his second deal just yet. You, you I agree. They should definitely go get Anthony Bennett. <laughs> You can't, but this isn't, you can sell low, but you can't sell for nothing. And when he's looking at a five year, $154 million commitment, um, it, it, I don't know what, I don't know who would give you even anything who, what team would be willing to roll the dice, maybe the Pistons, but they don't have anything to give you. Can we agree that the Timberwolves are the most talented team with very little upside? Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, it's just hard to see them maneuvering their way out of this situation they've gotten themselves into. Do you see them and, ultimately trading any one, though, of those three? Probably yeah, not. Yeah, I, think, you I do? think they're going to have to. Just because when the next couple of years go by and they're nothing more than a 7 or 8 seed or a team just on the outside of the Western playoff picture, something's going to have to change. You can't keep running it back with the same core that's getting older and isn't moving into title contention. And I, I just can't see that happening. Well, do you think Jimmy Butler is going to resign with them next summer? Oh, probably not. In which case, you don't, and you, but you don't think they'll trade him. You think Thibodeau will talk himself into letting it ride and trying to resign him next year? I just have very little confidence in that front office. I think that's, if that's not abundantly clear. Yeah, but I also think that that's perfectly fair. Um, is there I mean, until they do something that's going to convince us otherwise? Why would we believe anything else? <laughs> Derek Rose is going to be the focal point of that team for the next decade. Wait, can we talk about the Timberwolves needed wings? And not only did they sign Derek Rose and Anthony Tolliver, but they hard capped themselves for Anthony Tolliver, who will now make more than Bielita will make with the Sixers, who signed him using the room exception. This is like this is some Langston Galloway level shit from last summer when the Pistons yeah. hard capped themselves, basically said goodbye to KCP so early into the process. You wait out the market if it's you know what if you don't sign Anthony Tolliver, guess what happens? You don't sign Anthony Tolliver. Was really good last year, fantastic shooter. He didn't fill a need. <laughs> wait, when you say that you wait out the the market, are you talking to the Timberwolves or the Lakers? <laughs> It's great that people think, and I'm I'm sure LeBron James has been consulted, but if he has been, he is a terrible proxy GM because those moves came so... I understand what the Lakers agree with their cap space, but the moves that they made immediately following James's addition make zero sense. Zero. And if they it just really makes me did, mad. If they signed Rondo for $9 million for a year just to piss off the big baller brand and Lonzo Ball's people... That's just ridiculous. And I honestly, looking at this roster, and I'm just of the mind, I respect 
LeBron's decision. We'll have a certain level of admiration for it if he plays out next season with the Lakers as kiddies rather than them going all in on a trade. At the same time, from a basketball standpoint, he needs to DeAndre Jordan the hell out of his free agency decision and, and go somewhere else because there you can't lose an offseason in which you sign LeBron James at the peak or near the height of his powers. But the Lakers are coming pretty fucking close. If I like, it's I, I don't think it's possible for them to have done a much worse job in the aftermath of signing the greatest player alive. It's so frustrating too. Like I get what they're doing, and I've written about it. Like that they're focusing on defense and they're preserving their cap space for 2019 because these are all one-year contracts. But it's so frustrating that. You know, we we have this opportunity to watch the extended prime of LeBron James, and they're about to squander a year of it because they're putting together a team that does not complement him whatsoever. If you want to build around LeBron, you surround him with shooting. Rajon Rondo, Lance Stevenson, JaVale McGee, like, what is going on here? It's just, it's disappointing because we don't get to watch him do what he this whole offseason was supposed to be about him escaping that Cleveland situation and putting himself in position to be on a better team. Are they better than the Cavaliers because of these moves? No, he's going to be doodling the 2017-2018 Cavs in his notebook or journal by mid by Shout February. out Dan's Twitter feed. Shout out Dan's sister for doodling while she was at work and sending it over to him. Is here's a good conspiracy theory. Is LeBron just trying to win more MVP awards? Because You've surrendered to the Warriors. Now you don't have any other All-Stars on your team, present-day All-Stars. And you go to the Lakers. If you turn them into a top-four conference team, top-three conference team, I don't think they're top-three. Probably case for them to be in the top-four or five. If you do that with this supporting cast, his MVP case becomes a lot stronger. Yeah, but that presumes that LeBron actually cares about that. And I'm not really sure that he does. This was not a basketball move by any stretch. No, it was a family move. It was a, you know, let's go play for one of the historic organizations move. Uh, And maybe there's some upside down the road. Uh, But yeah, I mean, it wasn't wasn't a basketball move for this coming season. I I did see, I think last night, maybe maybe this morning, it's all running together because this week has been so nuts. Uh, Why is that? (laughs) No reason in particular. The fireworks. Um, <laughs> fuck fireworks. That's my stance. I'm not a huge fan of fireworks. I think that, you know, it's, it's the same thing every year and not to get all super like liberal on us or anything, but I just wonder if the money that governments allocate towards big firework displays could be better used, like providing affordable housing or something like that. But that's a, that's a topic for another time. I'm going to simplify gonna say, it and say as a dog parrot, screw yeah, fireworks. Yeah, that too. That too. <laughs> That too. But no, the, 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 what I was trying to say is I, I don't remember when I saw it, but I saw that LeBron, if he wins MVP with the Lakers, would become the first player in any major professional sport in America. So I, I can't speak to the world of soccer uh, to win MVP with three different teams. Again, maybe this is all just his play at doing that. It's not, but maybe it is. It, we'll go with that. <laughs> So I haven't given, I'm assuming you've given thought to these three quick hitters. I have not prepped you for this at all. What has been your favorite signing of free agency thus far, aside from the, the obvious? So your, your non-obvious favorite free agent signing, 
your least favorite free agency signing, and I'm going to pester you for a Kawhi Leonard prediction because I've decided to do that to every single guest we have until there is a resolution. As you should. Which means As I'm going to be asking this question until June, next June. Pretty much. Yeah. Um, I think my favorite signing is Tyreek Evans to the Pacers. Such a I really, really like that fit. Um, it gives Oladipo another ball handler who can take pressure off him. Uh, he really developed as a scorer during his one year in Memphis. And I think that significantly increases the upside of that Pacers organization. The Pacers now have all these expiring contracts that they can build around and uh, build trade packages around a midseason if they really want to. And now they're, they're still set up to just have a ton of cap space next year, assuming they don't extend Miles Turner before restricted free agency. Even the the organization as a whole, people, I think people need to pump their brakes on the Pacers for a second, like before we declare them a top three Eastern Conference team. Let's make oh, sure. Oh, sure. Let's sure, make not sure, trying to do that. No, you're not, but people in my mentions and comments on my articles, let's make sure, and I'm not, I think Victor Oladipo is for real, but let's make sure that he can put together two consecutive seasons of being a top 20 player before. We're just so sure that he's there. The Doug McDermott signing was probably good too. Mm-hmm. It seems like a a nice value play, and they needed shooting because they have to stop taking so many damn long twos, even when you have all the depot shooting a zillion percent on them. And same thing, Thaddeus Young's good from there. I like what the Pacers did. Your... I think they've stealthily had one of the better off seasons in the NBA between drafting Aaron Holiday and Thaddeus Young opting in, and and getting Doug McDermott and uh, Tyreek Evans. Like they've. They've really improved themselves in a lot of ways while, like you said, preserving cap space for the future. I, I am interested to see just how their defense fares. Thaddeus Young, great defender. Victor Oladipo, Victor Oladipo can be really good. Tyreek Evans is okay at points, but they don't have that like really switchy guy, I guess. Mm-hmm. And even I think Miles Turner is underrated defensively too. This is probably it can be a league average defense, and they were they had like the second best defense in crunch time by the end of the year. Maybe it was the first best. They and they were better after the All Star break, but the offense also torpedoed after the All Star break. Yeah. I'm just interested to see if they can strike a balance. What was your least favorite free agency signing? Can I just say all Lakers move? I figure that's non LeBron edition. Yeah, I mean, how can it be anything else? Like, what are you doing? We've we've been over this, but like, especially with Lance Stevenson, <laughs> he's not that good. He doesn't get along with LeBron. He can't shoot. He likes to shoot. What's happening there? No, I'm 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 with you. My favorite, uh, if anyone cares about my own answer, was just the Clippers adding Mike Scott when they needed they needed bigs and to have him letting Washington letting him go. Well, not letting. It's not like they could have offered him, but a ton of more money. That was my favorite. My least favorite, definitely the non LeBron Lakers signing. I'm going to catch crap for this. The Dante Exum signing by the Jazz. I think it's a defensible play at three years and thirty three million. I am going to guarantee you that no one else was giving him that money. There was no reason to pay him more than the mid-level exception. And when you look at what they're trying to do, the way they structured Derek's favors, his contract, you want to have all that 2019 cap space. Exum doesn't kill it. He's essentially just going to take up the spot that Alec Burks is giving away. I still want to know who was giving him more than the mid-level exception money, which is $8.6 million. That that's fair. Um, while we're throwing out the the hotter takes on these, can I just say that one of my least favorite contracts is whatever happens with Aaron Gordon? Four years and eighty four million is just. You look at what Julius Randle got, and it makes you wonder. Hopefully, this isn't dated by the time this publishes. But what is Parker going to get? 
If you're the Magic, though, you sign Gordon to that deal way too quickly. It is just, there's no, now that he's a restricted free agent, like he's here. This isn't the Suns giving Devin Booker an extension. That has passed. He's already a restricted free agent. There's no harm in letting him set his own market. And if he comes back and he says, oh, this team is going to give me this much, then you match it. Or if it's lower than expected, you can throw him a few extra million as a sign of goodwill before he signs the offer sheet. Yeah, and I, I kind of get it from the goodwill perspective, but like, I'm just not convinced Aaron Gordon is good. No, I'm not either. And until he, his defense can be okay, but he, he hasn't proved that he can anchor anything as a four or five. He's kind of switchy, but you don't want him defending wings. And then he so badly wants to be a wing on offense. Yeah. It's just, it's horrid to watch. And then you throw in Jonathan Isaac and, uh, and Mo Bamba there. And I'm just, I'm not sure that I love that move because it's going to force one of them to play the three and you don't want that. For some minutes, you could talk yourself into it because defensively it should be great. But yeah, the whole look at what we can do with Isaac Gordon and Bamba, I'm, I'm, I'm not about it. It's, I, yep. you need, you need to score. <laughs> Kawhi Leonard prediction. Retirement? I don't know. Like. <laughs> Him and Andrew Bynum just touring the world again. Yeah, I mean, we we talked about this before we started recording, but I just have no idea. Like, he doesn't want to go anywhere. The Spurs asks, or reported asks, I should say, are ridiculous. Like, they're not they're not getting three good young players and two future first round picks and two first round pick swaps for Kawhi Leonard coming off an injury. Like, that's just not going to happen. So, I have no idea. I kind of feel like. He's going to be a spur for the next season. That's I picked. That's what I've been picking is that he's going to stay with the Spurs or end up on the Sixers. Um, I stick to that. I would well. love for him to end up on the Sixers, but I, I, especially like we saw this morning that Fultz is unavailable in these trade talks. And yeah, getting Wilson Chandler might help make Dario Saric a little bit more expendable in a trade package, but it's hard given what San Antonio seems to want and what Philadelphia can reasonably offer, knowing that he's a flight risk next summer (laughs) to do anything. And his medicals. I'm sure they'll have access to more information, but it's that his quad injury is still a mystery in both its severity and prognosis. Yeah. At least from our bird's eye view. I do think it's worth reminding people how good Kawhi Leonard is. And then if you're going to, that this is the type of player on an expiring contract that you would go all in on. The Spurs is asked, specifically from the Lakers, per uh, Larry Kuhn, author of the CBA FAQ, is ridiculous. But since 2015-2016, almost 400 players have totaled at least 1,500 minutes. Kawhi Leonard is second in win shares per 48 minutes during that time. Number one is Steph, two is, is Leonard, three is CP3, four is Kevin Durant, Five is James Harden, six is LeBron, seven is Gobert, so Andy can touch himself to that later. Russell Westbrook is number eight. Nicole Jokic is number nine. DeAndre Jordan is number ten. Like this is this is a guy that franchises spend years, if not decades, trying to draft or sign or acquire via trade. And if you're confident he's going to be healthy, you would make the all in play. Now Did we did we both pick him? to win MVP before this last season. I know that I did. I can't remember if you did, but this was before we knew what was happening with the injury. My guess is I did, but it might be, I feel like I picked him for 2016, 2017 as well. So it might be, I might've picked him for both, but I'm going to say, yes, we probably did. Yeah. I think, I think we both did. 
It'd be if he's on the Spurs to start the season. I'm picking him to win MVP too, just because I want the. I'm going to just have faith that the entertainment is going to work itself out. <laughs> Could you imagine going from this to winning MVP with the Spurs next year? To then, let's say he leaves <laughs> after winning MVP if they don't sign him to the designated veteran I mean, extension this summer. If that's the case, like if Greg Popovich manages to talk LaMarcus Aldridge out of a trade and into playing the best basketball he's ever played and then goes through all of these trade scenarios with Kawhi Leonard and turns him into an MVP. Forget about like Hall of Fame enshrinement. Can we just deify him? Yeah, I think we need to. Because he saved Tim Duncan too. Remember Tim Duncan was thinking about going to the Magic all those years ago and wasn't there the story there was like some weird wrestling match with like Pop or he went to his house and Popovich basically convinced him to stay. That's almost why I expect Kawhi Leonard to be in San Antonio. Is it that far gone? Like, just let get rid of Tony Parker, who's one of the worst teammates ever at this point, and maybe that'll help. Yeah, I was literally about to ask you that. Like, would you just jettison Tony Parker knowing what he's done for this franchise if that's what Leonard asked? Yes, because he's also done some other shady stuff uh, behind the scenes of the franchise and everyone knows. Is Leonard married? I don't know. I don't think he is. And I mean, we, we. I feel like we know nothing about him. Right, which is why putting him in a market like Los Angeles would just be... I don't even know what that would mean. It wouldn't do anything for his endorsements, and I feel like it would make for hell on his personal life. It definitely could. Um, That'll do it for us, though. I want to thank Adam for coming on and talking about his progressive GOAT rankings. Be sure to check those out on NBAMath.com. They're up. Peruse through them. They're fun. Definitely read the criteria. But perusing through them is uh, great. Even I, this morning, uh, were, was finding new things, like the rookies and the by-position GOAT rankings. It's super fun. He put a ton of work into this, and it, it actually is useful. Even if you don't want to use it as your end-all, be-all, as your kitchen sink GOAT metric, this is definitely worth being a huge part of a conversation. I think really helps uh, delineate who the greatest players of all times are and when they have taken over. Uh, just looking at the the way that it's progressed. So be sure you're checking that out. Also follow follow Adam on Twitter, who is an underrated follow if you love both stats, awesome analysis, and really bad puns. He is at Frommel09, F-R-O-M-A-L-09. You can follow me at Dan Favale, F-A-V-A-L-E. You can follow Andy at Andrew D. Bailey. You can follow... Hardwood Knox at Hardwood Knox. Be sure to follow MBA Math at MBA underscore math. As always, you can still get 15% off at the MBA Math shop, mbamath.com slash shop, promo code Benno, B-E-N-O. Until next time, I leave you all with a shout out to the one, the only, the unparalleled Kyle Anderson. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.